A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. Three extracts from Ian Rod Aaron by Simon Barraclough. The Spanish-Italian border was dismantled overnight, and the next day rusting flatbeds, snakes of freight, metal fatigued as old fuck groaned into view, uncoiling wire, pitching barriers, angle-grinding watchtowers and turrets with migraine sparks, and the English-Nazi border was christened, with street parties of rippers and crippens and Mosleys and whore-whores. My heart had long lapsed, too expensive to renew, the biometrics broken down, but I had my mother's papers and a code word she swaddled in lullabies now lost but not forgotten. To Dublin then, with McCabe the assassin, on one of the last helicopters out of Saigon, a DC-3 out of West Berlin, an old crate out of Silvertown, wings and fuselage clogged by Imperial sugar work, a sticky crash landing in the Liffey, doggy paddling down the Dodder till we found a wharf to gorge on Gorgonzola with grinning green teeth and a bottle of Burgundy from a sommelier who left no reflection as the mirror food floated towards us. Deeper then, sans macabre, into the verdant Volverland, Ian Rod Aaron from Dublina to Lomniak, Intercity, a head full of hell, INRI, iron nails ran in with Mercia and Camier sharing my table, all elbows and shanks, playing footsie with the sleepers, buggering any gap with a bitching gab, shuffling trips to the buffet car for miniatures and sticking up the trolley for plasticated Jamesons. What are trains but wormholes through weather? What's a drinks trolley but a clattering cat scan of your liver's livid inventory? What are tatoes but body bags for tuba leprosy? I tried to read but train shake, breeds flies from the alphabet, juddering runes using sandwiches as treadmills, vomiting the small print of the universe we never read but still click agree. Raindrops try to board but have such small hands they can't carry tickets. They clamp themselves to the gritty windows, limpet mines triggered long distance by light. And so the long day closes, the road runs out, the buffers dissolve, the sleepers separate like spliced DNA giving up the ghost. The station was a green screen, the carriage's cad lines in a blank simulation with no OD matrix, where a stone to be gathered again. Cousins try to recognise each other after decades of loving neglect. Flick through the Rolodex of buried anecdotes, blushing crushes, stitches and grazes in the A&E department of contused memory. I break the panopticon by smashing every mirror. They piece me back together in the fragments of their eyes. My dad crawls out of the ground and begs me for a piggyback. I carry him along with this coffin, this new weighty loss, this hodload of absent bricks that curves the spine and dislocates the shoulder. Paul Bearer's sob. I've heard this sound before. I watch my shoes, black shoes, black shoes tracking from consecrated tile to municipal tarmac to patchwork pathway to disturbed soil. 
open up the ground again, delve into the insect's world. Earth felt the wound. Zooms. The last thing you need is a funeral. Simon, these are three extracts from a longer poem. Where did mm-hmm. this poem come from? This poem was kind of forged from a series of crises back in 2016. Um, one of them was the famous Brexit referendum. Mm-hmm. The second one was the election of Donald Trump as a US president. And almost smack in the middle of that, or actually towards November, was my 50th birthday. So these were kind of one Ouch. personal crisis or significant moments and mm-hmm. two kind of gut-wrenching, quite depressing, um, very disruptive political events. Mm-hmm. And to celebrate my 50th birthday, I wasn't sure what to do. Obviously, it's a big date. And um, rather than have a party here in London where I live, I thought, why don't I go to Limerick in Ireland, where my mother's family are from, where I had lots of lovely childhood experiences and mm-hmm. hadn't seen my hadn't seen my, my twin aunties for a, for a few years, and one of them I knew was unwell with Alzheimer's at the time. And I said to my mum and my sister, why don't, we, why don't we have a big lunch in Ireland rather than in London, and then mm-hmm. we can meet the family? Um, so that went down well. And then I thought, well, why not go to Dublin first with my good friend, the brilliant poet Chris McCabe? Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll have a day in Dublin the day before my birthday, and then I'll get the train down to Limerick, and he would go back to Liverpool where he lives. And... Chris and I had such a kind of rollicking good time in the pubs of Dublin that day that we we extemporized a few lines of verse, which are early on in the poem. There's about 10 lines that we wrote together as we drank a little bit, um, well, more and more pints of Guinness in this lovely Wolfside mm-hmm. pub. And something about the, the, the comical energy of those lines made me think I need to make more of this trip. Um, and I started writing a kind of shell to go around those lines. And that just kind of... Um, had so much energy to it and was so much fun to write that I just kept going. So I probably wrote, it's, a, it's, it's about a 14-page poem. I probably wrote three or four pages on that trip. And then after that, it was a much longer time adding to it and, and adding new layers. And it probably took another kind of two or three years to get the finished thing together. Um, but I always knew that it was going to be um, a single poem and probably either at the end of a, a, of a collection or a pamphlet in its mm-hmm. own right. And in the end, it came out as a pamphlet with broken sleep books. Um, and, and so you started writing actually on the trip? Yes, I think possibly on the train. I think the, the lines about Mercier and Camier, um, mm-hmm. which I think were mentioned in the extract. Yes. Um, I, I did have that book with me on the table, on the train, and it just it just worked its way into the, into the poem. So that's a very kind of factual moment but i i wanted the poem to be kind of personal but transformed and transfigured by and through the language so that it didn't read like a memoir so that there were things in there which seemed true and things in there that might not be true um i kind of wanted um i wanted to mix the personal and the distant hmm. which is a kind of fusion of the, the poems types of poems i've written over the years it's like a dialectic i wanted them to come together in a strange form where you couldn't really tell what was true and what wasn't yeah, you certainly get that impression. I mean, 
it's kind of, I can now see the events that you were talking about kind of through the distorting lens of this kind of phantasmagoria. I mean, the Spanish-Italian mm. border. What a delightful yes. idea that is. Um, and being dismantled overnight. I mean, it kind of dismantles our expectations right away in that first line that we're clearly this is not going to be a realistic documentary style of poem. And yet it yeah. did start with a real event. Yes. It's like an expressionistic take on real events. Um, and there's a book by the great Irish poet Rashid Tierney called The Spanish-Italian Border, which she took from a joke I made to her um, one right. night over dinner. And I said, I said we should move to the Spanish-Italian border because she loves Spain and I love Italy. Mm-hmm. So right. we'll, get, we'll, right, right, we'll, right. we'll move France from the equation. And she ran with that as for a poem and a book. So it's got a, this was like a kind of callback for mm-hmm. Rashid's pleasure. Um, and I think starting with a non-existent border just felt like the right way to go for me. It enabled the rest of the language to kind of tumble out of it. It really does tumble, doesn't it? This extraordinary images of all these rusting flatbeds, snakes of freight, metal fatigued as all fuck, uncoiling wire, barriers, watchtowers, turrets, and so on. I mean, it's where does all of that come from? It's a very good question. Somewhere in my imagination, you know, I wanted a sense of a sense of change and horror and disruption, um, and the new kind of state being created. I sometimes refer to this poem as. Um, it's like an anti-fascist um, homage to my Irish aunties. So <laughs> I want to pay tribute to my, to my family, but I also wanted to write something that was against fascism um, and see if those two things can sit together. Um, and if they do, great. If they don't, that's also great. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of clashing of stones in some ways um, to see what music they, they produce. Right. Well, maybe we'll, we'll come back to the, to the aunties and the family Mm. Uh, event in a bit but I mean you know so you've again you've got the English Nazi border and street parties of rippers and crippens and mosleys and whore-whores and for anyone who isn't familiar with the history these these are not the the best of British are they? No absolutely not it's a series of nightmarish characters um the years of the of Peter Sutcliffe and Yorkshire Ripper um affected me and my family and, and neighbours um quite closely he actually attacked someone directly outside our house oh, on my 14th birthday. So that, and obviously we were all affected by that, that very haunting, very distressing period. And it's probably cropping up again in the follow-up to this poem. I've started a, a kind of sequel to this, um, which is more about England in the 70s. But again, with the same kind of approach, stylistically and in terms of incorporating fantasy. So yeah, so it's a kind of angry, um, an angry summation of how I felt England was going at that time in 2016, and my feelings haven't changed that much, to be honest. In fact, they're pretty much the same. But the escape to Ireland um, is a response to that. So it's a kind of a fugue into memory and exile. To Dublin, then. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can say this because I've got Irish ancestry too. Uh-huh. There's always a sense of Ireland as being this, I don't know, for me, as, as being this kind of hinterland. Mm-hmm. that that's where we came from and yeah it's it's easy to harbor romantic dreams of escape uh-huh. um but you actually did take the train and you found yourself in dublin with mccabe uh-huh it, it all gets quite joyce in at this point doesn't it could well could well do i mean there's lots of my personal lifelong literary influences in this book um predominantly james joyce and samuel beckett 
um, the two great modernist Irish writers who were also close friends. And Beckett kind of was Joyce's editor for a while, uh, amanuensis, as he calls it. And I think I love Beckett since I was very young, since I was something like very precocious, like 12 or 13. And Joyce, I got to love a little bit later, but they're both kind of massive, towering influences um, over many writers. Um, and there's, even though they're both predominantly prose and stage writers, I did teach a, a class on Beckett and poetry at the poetry school a few years ago, mm-hmm. where we kind of mined some of his poetry in the first session, but then the rest of it was his kind of prose and stage works. And we kind of mined and, and, and were sensitive to the kind of poetry that he brings to that form. Yeah. Um, so they both write a kind of very poetic prose, which kind of, again, mm. melts and breaks down all those kind of categories and barriers between forms, which was something I was interested in doing um, with this, this long poem. It, you know, as you describe that, it really does feel like that this is a, you know, the kind of the augmented reality of life inside an author's head, because you've got <laughs> what is going on in the in the real world, in inverted commas, outside. Uh-huh. Um, but there's there's always an overlay of, oh yeah, this is where Joyce wrote this, or this is that scene from whatever book it was or poem it was. Um, plus, there's the obviously the historical politico overlay over the whole thing. Yes. So I, mean, I guess in a sense it is that is kind of realistic, isn't it? I mean it's not it's not photographic realism. No. It's a kind of psychological realism or a kind of psycholinguistic realism. This is how language kind of works in one's brain, um, or through one's fingers, almost with a life of its own. I, I I kind of want I kind of deliberately surrendered to wherever this wherever language wanted to take me in this poem, I kind of went with it and I thought I'll worry about editing it later. Mm-hmm. Um and I stuck to that principle. So it, when I did write on this, it, it kind of tumbled out and I let the lines go as long as they wanted to go. Um, I let the images go down crazy pathways and didn't stop myself, which was very, a very liberating thing to do. Um, and then I kind of tweaked it and edited it a little bit at the end, but not that much. I did want to stay true to, to that kind of energy. And I wanted the energy to take the reader through. I wanted them to kind of almost step onto, step into this poem and be whisked along and then booted off at the end. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, just like a real train ride. Um, exactly. And just go, kind of go with the uh, with the flow of it. And that's, yeah, I mean, this is a very joyous in quality, isn't it? To be led by the language. Mm-hmm. So you've got, I mean, you can see it in one line, you've got intercity, you get, you go from intercity, a head full of hell, iron R-I, iron nails ran in. So you've, You've got that association between intercity and and the you know the letters carved on the cross above Jesus, yes. the crucifixion, and it's kind of all makes sense in the in the in the writer's mind, doesn't it? Yeah, they're kind of significant logos of of that mean certain things, and and the iron the iron nails run in is a direct quote from from Ulysses, James Joyce's Ulysses, mm-hmm. um, one of the hilarious jokes he makes that that teaches on blasphemy and i had i don't know whether you were the same mark but i had uh, i had a kind of gentle catholic upbringing so catholicism is i'm I'm, yes i I do sometimes still go to church yeah yes i think that's a good way of putting it yeah and and yeah not the brutal version exactly i think my mum had the brutal version and all her siblings did i had a much Mm. softer gentler version um which I'm still kind of fond of, though I wouldn't call myself a practicing Catholic, but I do occasionally I have bouts of church going and, mm-hmm. you know, I still have 
voices in my head. Um, I still talk to you know Jesus sometimes, but it's 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 a kind of I don't even know how to describe it. It's not a devout process. It's just a lifelong thing. Um, it's just language kind of playing language and persona yeah. playing with each other, I think. And, um, and I wanted to get some of that into the poem as well. Um, I really just allowed myself to put into this package anything that was important to me um, in terms of reality and literary influence and privately, there's some very private moments in there that I almost blush at mentioning, but I just, I wanted them to be there. I didn't want anything to stop the, almost independent energy of this this piece of writing which i think is what makes writing exciting for me in the first place yeah i think this you know reading this and again i'm thinking if if anybody is maybe relatively new to modern poetry and, and used to stuff that that kind of makes a bit more logical sense bit by bit uh-huh. i think the way i certainly i, I experienced this is oh we're being invited to go with this to go with the language to enjoy the the free play of of words and ideas and what are they called? I've still got some COVID brain fog. Um, oh dear. Acronyms. <laughs> and that is really, that's as much of the journey as the external. There's this chap going on a, a trip to mark his 50th birthday and, and yes. he's meeting his relatives. And the other thing I, I, I didn't mention about the structure of this was that the auntie who I knew was unwell, um, she died three weeks after this trip. So three weeks later, everybody went back. So I went on the same journey back, but this time to a funeral in a much more somber mode. And there was something about those two kind of triangular journeys from London to Dublin and Limerick and back happening twice, once mm. for a celebration, supposedly, and the second one for a funeral, uh, um, where I saw even more relatives, just structurally was irresistible to me. I just thought this is such a... Because we hadn't been there for so long and suddenly we're going twice yeah. And I'm so glad I arranged this birthday trip because the family did get together and they did see my, my auntie one last time. And they, yeah. they wouldn't, my sister wouldn't have seen her. I wouldn't have seen her if it wasn't mm. for this. So while it was tragic that my, my auntie did passed away unexpectedly early, I thought, I thought she had many years left. My, my mum my said she hasn't got long. And I said, oh, come on, mum, she's got years left. Three weeks later, my mum was absolutely right. Um, oh. And that kind of, it's almost like a, there's something very playful and geometric about that structure. And that's what made me, having started it in that early celebratory stage, once the second thing happened, I thought, well, I kind of know how this is going to be now. Um, and that allowed me to expand some of the family mythology as well. So, so the political energy kind of calmed down a little bit into a more personal energy due to events, but that all happened within like three, four weeks. And right. I just thought, well, this is the next thing. I'm In the same way with my last book, Sunspots, it's like I wrote 30 poems about the sun in the space of like three weeks. I thought, well, this is, this is going to be a book about the sun. And mm-hmm. I knew that, you know. And yeah. um, it's nice when that happens to me. I think, well, this is absolutely what I have to do you, now. You get that feeling of like, you know, life is, is nudging me, saying, hey, you, this, this is a poem. You've got to pay attention now. Yes. And, and make sure you get it down. So, so for listeners who obviously haven't read the whole story you do mm-hmm. cover you know you you've got this great scene with the lunch with the family yes. in the earlier on and then you go back for the funeral um mm-hmm. could you say something about the process because i know some writers struggle about writing about family and what do i put in and what if so and so reads it and doesn't like it what, what what's your stance towards all of that i'm very 
sensitive to that, actually. My my first book, Los Alamos Mon Amour, um, I wouldn't call it confessional, but it's the closest to the confessional mode I've ever written. And a couple of noses were put out of joint by some of the poems in there. And that mm-hmm. made me very wary about being too um, yeah. personal or or allowing people to recognize themselves in any of my work. So the follow-up book, Neptune Blue, was much more experimental and playful and and deliberately non-personal. Um, and that came from reading Ulysses in, in a week on an Italian beach, which completely reconfigured my brain, I felt. You know? right. And then suddenly I, I had permission from Joyce to do anything um, yeah. in that book. And then Sunspots again was was a, and this a kind of a, a fusion of those two modes so there's some personal stuff in there but there's lots of experimental lots of disguised reality in there and this time i just thought the way i'm writing is 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 very kind of open hearted and quite tender and some of my family obviously different people have read this and mm-hmm. they all like it and there's no complaints and you know no one thinks i exposed anybody um yeah but yeah, it's something I'm I'm very aware of not wanting to cause offence, um, but also feeling it's an important thing to to write about. Um, so I don't even I think I was so confident that whatever I set down here wasn't going to upset anybody that I just went with it. Um, I didn't kind of self censor those those moments. Um, and there's a little passage in there about. It's like a one-to-one address with my auntie, um, who had to mention at the time. I think is very is very kind of tender, and uh, she was unable to read it or understand it. So she's the one person who didn't mm. didn't get to see that. Um, but yeah, I feel I don't know. I feel I took a risk, but a risk worth taking, and I was confident that no one would be particularly offended. And I think I I poke enough fun at myself or expose my own feelings more than I talk about anybody else, that it kind of counterbalances that. Yeah, you absolutely do. And it comes across as very, like you say, very tender. And, it, you know, I would hope it, it, it's a nice memorial for the family of, of a celebratory as well as a sad time. Um, I remember Caleb Parkin was on the show last month and he was talking about, he, he said David Sedaris, you know, the American uh-huh. humorist, he said he tells a lot of stories about family and friends and whatever he says but you should always he says you you shouldn't use it to get one over you as long as you come off worse or people come off yes better than you in some way then then it's okay um and certainly you've yeah i think that's, there's a lot of affection comes across yeah, in the poem that's a good that's a good principle and so you started off actually writing in the moment which is really interesting because uh-huh. it has got that vividness and the 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 enthusiasm, the excitement, linguistic, as well as, you know, whenever you go on a journey, it's, mm-hmm. I, I think there's a, a sense of adventure somewhere, particularly one like this. Um, so how did you approach editing this and revising it? And how much did you, you know, what how, how close is this to, to what you originally had? It's really close. Um, it's probably about <clears throat> 95% what went down originally um when i eventually sent it to aaron kent at broken sleep books he had kind of half a dozen suggestions and changes Mm -hmm. um i think most or all of which i incorporated very very wise i love it when an editor actually gets Mm hands-on some people don't like it but i think it's a 
it's a great honor to be edited by, you know, or encountered yeah. by another intelligent mind that cares about your, your language. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so it's kind of, the only question I had was, well, how, when will it end and how long will it go on for? I, at one point I thought, well, this will be three pages. Another point I thought, well, I could make it 200 pages. Um, but then it kind of rounded itself off. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll bite off this chunk of this narrative and I'll work on a follow-up maybe later. Um, so it was a, I knew I had to get from the, the first trip to Dublin to the funeral and then back home, but it's what goes in in the middle that was the, the question really. And there are there are bits that surprised me as I was writing it, where I suddenly leap back to Huddersfield in the nineteen seventies because um, something I wrote suggested the be- yes the, the the habit of of um, of my Irish relatives saying so now so now as a kind of it's like allora in Italian. It's like mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah, it's like a little yeah. pause. It doesn't mean anything, but it means everything. Yes. Um, and it means, okay, so we've covered that. Now we can move into the next thing or, you know, or, or that, now we can, it's an invitation to talk about something else. And Heaney's, Seamus Heaney's um, version of Beowulf begins with something like, so, full yes. stop. That's yes, the first thing. Yeah, yeah. And I always thought, well, that is, that is, that is so classically Irish. Um, that's, that's the same as so now. In fact, I kind of wish you'd said so mm-hmm. now. That's, yeah, that's yeah, that yeah, way. yeah. And that reminded me of the first time I came across Beowulf as a child. Um, mm-hmm. So suddenly I was in, I was in the, I was talking about Heaney, I was talking about Beowulf, I was talking about this Canadian um, substitute teacher we had when I was like eight, um, who made popcorn for us for the first time and read Beowulf to us, which was, you know, two mind-blowing events for me as a child. <laughs> now, didn't know what popcorn was at that time. She made it fresh with fresh butter. And then she read some really scary, gory passages from Beowulf to us. And I was like, wow, this is, this is just one, what a wonderful world. Um, so I kind of went down that path. Um, but because of this, because of this phrase, so now is what opened up that the next box wasn't planned at all. Um, but again, I just went with it. Um, and in fact, I'd kind of, I'd forgotten that memory until I was writing this and suddenly opened up a, a whole chamber um, I hadn't thought about for decades. And you do, so most of the poem is in these really wonderfully capacious long lines where uh-huh. you, you get the sense you could put anything into it and sent by yes. the end of it, you probably have put just about everything into it. Um, but there's also some other, one really quite experimentally looking passage and another um, really beautiful evocation of the conversation with your auntie with some quite delicate short lines yes um anything you'd like to say about the those decisions well i definitely wanted i always want to get um as much variety as possible into either collection or to a long piece Mm -hmm. because i think readers need um to recalibrate to take a pause to to shift into to change gears shift into another gear um and I think you know people's brains are very curious and very malleable, and they like they don't want too much of a monotonous kind of structure going on. They want to now mm-hmm. take a little. We're going to have short yeah. lines for a while, or we're going to have some visual poetry for a while. And it, yeah. it kind of, if I think of this poem as a as a kind of train, it's like all the different passages are like different types of rolling stock or different forms of carriages. So they make <laughs> they make they make different sounds. Some of them are very Brilliant. commodious, luxurious. Yeah. So one's one's a quiet coach, one is a very rowdy coach full of, you know, drunken fools, or one of them has the toilet, you know, door flapping open. So I wanted 
I wanted it to be an energetic journey, but also for each, as if you're moving through all these different kind of carriages en route, um, which was a nice, it was, again, a nice permission for me to, to suddenly change gears or switch points to keep the train metaphor um, going. Um, and sometimes you just want to be very quiet after a rambunctious passage, you know, you want to, yeah. you want to whisper in someone's ear or yeah, yeah, you want yeah, to yeah. just give them an image to look at rather than any meaning or sense to unpack or interpret. Um, I think people often, I don't know if you, if you hear this in the course of recording these podcasts or, or feedback is that people feel that a poem is a test um, or something they need to understand and unpack mm-hmm. rather than just, you know, you probably wouldn't think of, what does Marla's fifth mean? I'm not comparing myself to Marla, but you know, um, music is something we allow to wash over us and through us without feeling, yes. well, that's about fate, isn't it? Or that's about Marla's second wife or something, which you know, you can do that, but that's not the most important thing about those pieces of music. Um, and I just want people to really, and myself, to just enjoy the language, this wonderful thing we have, which can be wonderful at communicating information and experiences, but also is its own pleasure. Um, and that pleasure can also work in different ways. You know, something can come out of pure pleasure. Um, I think I mentioned jouissance twice or something, uh, which is kind of from my old days of critical theory and studying Jacques Lacan, there's something about pleasure being a dangerous and a creative thing. Um, and it's yes. part, central to language. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I mean, the way, don't quite think in quite such elevated terms as Marla, but I like to think about pop music. You know, you know if you like it or not within the first couple of bars. And you might not understand, in inverted commas, all the lyrics, but they do mean something to you and, and they give pleasure and you can listen to them over and over again. That's what I like about yes. poems. It's, it's the similar kind of experience that, that there is. There is meaning in it, but that's only just part of the mix and it's not necessarily yeah. the most important part. Um, and certainly my experience of reading Rod, if I got that right, Ian Rod, Ian Rod, yeah. Iron Road, basically. Yeah, yeah. That's why mm. I keep trying, wanting to say Iron Road. Ian Rod, Aaron. Um, it was a real pleasure. It really kind of clackety clack through the, oh, through the, the poem and the pages. And you get to this, it's not quite the end of the whole poem, but that, that brutally funny line, the last thing you need is a funeral. But mm. there's a lot of pleasure on the way. So maybe we could have a listen again to those extracts that you read and and just save them again. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Three extracts from Ian Rod Aaron by Simon Barraclough. The Spanish-Italian border was dismantled overnight, and the next day rusting flatbeds, snakes of freight, metal fatigued as old fuck groaned into view, uncoiling wire, pitching barriers, angle-grinding watchtowers and turrets with migraine sparks, and the English-Nazi border was christened, with street parties of rippers and crippens and mosleys and whore-whores. 
My heart had long lapsed, too expensive to renew, the biometrics broken down, but I had my mother's papers and a code word she swaddled in lullabies now lost but not forgotten. To Dublin then, with McCabe the assassin, on one of the last helicopters out of Saigon, a DC-3 out of West Berlin, an old crate out of Silvertown, wings and fuselage clogged by Imperial sugar work, a sticky crash landing in the Liffey, doggy paddling down the Dodder till we found a wharf to gorge on Gorgonzola with grinning green teeth and a bottle of Burgundy from a sommelier who left no reflection as the mirror food floated towards us. Deeper then, sans McCabe, into the verdant Volverland, Ianrod Aaron from Dublino to Lomniac, intercity, a head full of hell, iron R.I., iron nails ran in, with Mercia and Camier sharing my table, all elbows and shanks, playing footsie with the sleepers, buggering any gap with a bitching gab, shuffling trips to the buffet car for miniatures and sticking up the trolley for plasticated Jamesons. What are trains but wormholes through weather? What's a drinks trolley but a clattering cat scan of your liver's livid inventory? What are tatoes but body bags for tuber leprosy? I tried to read but train shake, breeds flies from the alphabet, juddering runes using sandwiches as treadmills, vomiting the small print of the universe we never read but still click agree. Raindrops try to board but have such small hands they can't carry tickets. They clamp themselves to the gritty windows, limpet minds triggered long distance by light. And so the long day closes, the road runs out, the buffers dissolve, the sleepers separate like spliced DNA giving up the ghost. The station was a green screen, the carriages cad lines in a blank simulation with no OD matrix, where a stone to be gathered again. Cousins try to recognise each other after decades of loving neglect. Flick through the Rolodex of buried anecdotes, blushing crushes, stitches and grazes in the A&E department of contused memory. I break the panopticon by smashing every mirror. They piece me back together in the fragments of their eyes. My dad crawls out of the ground and begs me for a piggyback. I carry him along with this coffin, this new weighty loss, this hodload of absent bricks that curves the spine and dislocates the shoulder. Pallbearers sob. I've heard this sound before. I watch my shoes, black shoes, black shoes tracking from consecrated tile to municipal tarmac to patchwork pathway to disturbed soil. Open up the ground again, delve into the insect's world. Earth felt the wound. Zooms, the last thing you need is a funeral. Erin Road Aaron by Simon Barraclough is published by Broken Sleep Books. Simon Barraclough won the London Writers' Competition in 2000, and his debut poetry collection, Los Alamos Mon Amour, published by Salt in 2008, was a forward prize finalist. Since then, his published works include Bonjour Tetris, 2010, Neptune Blue, 2011, and Sunspots 2015. 
Sunspots toured the UK in 2015 and 2016 as a one-man show, including music, songs and film. Simon devised and edited the multi-poet, multimedia event Psychopoetica in 2012. And in 2014, Simon was writer-in-residence at the Mullard Space Science Laboratory, where he edited the anthology of scientist poems Laboratorio. In addition to poetry, Simon has published short fiction and non-fiction. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links, as well as a full episode archive, at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.